Thank you so much. Well, I have, uh, I think I've only been here about 36 hours, but um, other than the temperature, I've had a fabulous time. And I have actually, I now have a new favorite thing in the world, which is cars that start remotely and warm up before you get into them. These are a good gift from God. Shannon has one, so Shannon is now my best friend in Ontario for life. Uh, but it's been great to be here. George and Joan, thank you so much for thinking of, of having me come. And um, and you guys, I, I, I don't know if you have to come to chapel. I imagine you have to come to a certain amount uh, a year. But I, I'm a student. I'm just finishing up my master's degree. I know how precious time is. I know how often there's an assignment due, it feels like, every five minutes. And so thank you for the gift of your time. And I hope it'll be um, productive. We have been talking about doubt weird topic for a Faith Talks series, except that I hope those of you who have been with me at least one of the other sessions have come to see uh, at least my case, that doubt uh, is not the opposite of faith, that the opposite of faith might be kind of a unreflective, um, uh, smug overconfidence, a denial of maybe some of the mystery of life, that, that, that um, that doubt can either be a threat to our faith or it can be a, this tremendous opportunity for growth, um, depending on the way that we respond to it. And we've also acknowledged that some of you actually uh, may not experience serious doubt and you're not smug and overconfident. You may have gotten the spiritual gift of faith um, that Paul describes that to, to some God gives uh, wisdom, to some he gives uh, miraculous powers, and to some he gives faith. And if you've been given that kind of faith and you really don't struggle with seasons of not being able to feel God's presence or wrestling with um, questions, know that you've been given that faith for the community. And the more that you can understand what your brothers and sisters go through when they do wrestle with times of doubt, um, the better you can use that gift uh, for the body. So we've been trying to say... What responses are helpful when doubt comes along? What responses um, allow doubt to be the ants in the pants of faith? What keeps it alive and moving, as Frederick Buechner says? And as uh, George mentioned, we said it really helps to expect some turbulence, to know that faith is a well-documented part of many faithful Christians' faith journey. It doesn't mean we're going down in flames. It can be a normal part of the journey. We talked about keeping up the conversation, coming to God with our doubts, um, as so many of our biblical heroes did. You know, they were full of questions. Sometimes they were hollering at God, but the important thing was they didn't turn away. They didn't give God the silent treatment, which kills relationships. They kept uh, coming and trusting that even though they couldn't perceive that something was going on, that God was there, alive and active, that he cares. And that's that incredible tradition of lament in the Psalms. To, to complain to God is actually a, a great act of faith. And today, as George mentioned, we're going to talk about staying in the story. One of the books, one of the authors, actually, that's really helped me um, with this whole thing about what do I do with doubt is a guy named Daniel Taylor. Have any of you come across him? Uh, he wrote a book, uh, I think in the 90s, maybe even the 80s, called um, The Myth of Certainty that really helped me a lot. And then last year, uh, he wrote this book called The Skeptical Believer for people who are kind of skeptical by temperament and what it's like for them uh, to commit in, uh, to a life of faith. And he says some really important things to himself as a natural-born skeptic about how to approach um, faith. He says, um, so often he found himself paralyzed by trying to prove or defend truth claims. The breakthrough for him was to shift his paradigm from argument to story. 
Not story as in what we make up at night to tell kids to help them go to sleep, but story as in what is the true story of the universe and how does my story fit into that story? So he says in the book, first I need to remind myself that I've been invited not into an argument, but into a story. Second, I recall that this story gives me not just something to believe, but something to do. And third, I propose to myself that the real test of any story is to ask what it asks me to love and what kind of life it requires me to live. And this reminds me, I think I've quoted from Frederick Buechner about five times already. If you haven't read you some Buechner, get you some Buechner. But uh, Frederick says, life is not a mystery to be solved, but a mystery to be lived. And the first time I read that, I think I was going through one of these struggling periods of doubt, I read, life is not a mystery to be solved, but a mystery to be lived. And all of a sudden, I realized that God is not a mystery to be solved, but a mystery to be loved. And when that's the case, when it's about the true story of the universe and the way our life stories fit into that story, then the story that our life tells becomes really important, and this whole idea of mystery starts to shift. And there's a cardinal who says that actually what we're called to is to be living mysteries, to live our lives in such a way that our lives just wouldn't make sense if God didn't exist. If somebody looked at the data of your life, the story of your life, and would go, that person, what they're doing, what they're about, what they value, what they do when they get up to when they go to bed every night, that doesn't make sense if there's no God. That's the kind of mystery that we're invited into. So I wanna spend our time together this morning talking about how we can stay in the story. And the first thing I want to challenge you and me to do is to examine carefully the story that your particular life and my particular life is um, telling. Have any of you read any Donald Miller? He's really big, big on story. A few of you, okay. He, um, he's got really a funny story because he wrote one sort of autobiography and it, be, it really resonated with a lot of people and they wanted to make a movie of it and the movie makers started working on a script and they said, Don, your life is just a little too boring to make a movie out of. You gotta spice it up a little. So he started going, he went and studied under this famous uh, screenplay writer and started to figure out all the elements of a key story and he discovered, you English majors will know this, you know, you gotta have a protagonist who's after something really important, something really worth struggle, a really worthy quest. And then that protagonist has to encounter some serious obstacles on the way to the quest, otherwise you don't have a story. And then work towards um, that quest and overcome those obstacles and ideally uh, get to the quest. And so Don was all immersed in this kind of way of thinking about stories. And he went and he had coffee with a buddy of his named Jason one day. And uh, Jason had a teenage daughter and a wife, and he said, Don, it's not good. We found some pot in our uh, daughter's bedroom, and she's dating this total deadbeat guy, and I'm afraid we're losing her. And Don, because he'd just been at this story workshop thing, he said, maybe, maybe she needs a better story. And the guy was like, huh? No, she needs, like, to be grounded and an intervention. She doesn't need a better story. And Don said, no, no, maybe, maybe... She just doesn't feel like she's a part of any story where she's wanted and needed, and this is the best one she can find. Even if, even if this guy wants to use her, at least he wants her, and she's part of something. And so then the guy, Jason, he asked Don a few more questions about story, and Don thought, well, maybe I've kind of offended him. I don't, I don't have a teenager. What am I doing giving advice? Didn't see the guy for a few months. When he ran into him again, the guy say, said, you won't believe what, what happened. 
went home and I started thinking about what story is my daughter's life telling, what story is my life telling, what story is our family's life telling. He said, then I started researching orphanages and um, places where there were a lot of orphans. And I found this area in Mexico where they really needed uh, orphanages built. And uh, any, any group that could raise 25 grand could go and build an orphanage. And so Jason said, I probably should have talked to my wife first about this. <laughs> but I gathered my wife and my sullen daughter in the living room, and I said, we need, we need to be part of something bigger than ourselves, and here's what we're going to do. I've committed us to raise 25 grand and go to Mexico and build this orphanage. And his wife was quite livid at first. Like, can't we get a car that actually works before we raise 25 grand? Um, but that night, he tried to explain to her this idea of, I think, I think we have to be part of a, a bigger story. And um, their relationship had been quite strained, and all of a sudden, she got it, and she said, I'm, I'm proud of you. Let's try to do this. And after a while, his daughter kind of got a vision for that story, too, and started using a little website she had to raise money, and they traveled to Mexico together. And before too long, she broke up with the deadbeat boyfriend because he just was not a suitable leading man for the story that she was living. He was not an appropriate character for the story um, that she was living. What story is your life telling? What quest are you after? Is it worth the obstacles, the struggles, the wrestling that you're going to encounter? Um, I was talking to Rainer. You guys know him, the, the technical wizard here at uh, Tyndale. Um, his, it sounds to me like his family kind of asked that question of themselves. I'm, I'm quite sure their children were not using pot at that time, particularly not Petra, who attends here. Totally sure. Um, but, um, but they asked themselves, what story is our family a part of? What story is our lives telling? And it took them on this journey to the Ukraine for three years. And if you don't know about it, you should talk to them about it. It, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to go to another country or do something crazy, but ask yourself, what story is my life telling? Is it worth the obstacles I'm going to encounter? Am I, am I after a worthy enough quest? The second thing we need to do is examine the story that the gospel is telling. And one way to think about it is this epic story that happens in four acts, creation, fall, redemption, and then the restoration of everything. The universe has a story. We're not just spinning around in circles or in entropy going backwards. There is a story. Your life is not tiny and insignificant in, part, in, the, in that story. It, you are part of something huge. And the hugeness of that story dignifies and contextualizes your story. And all the other stories we tell, again, you English majors will know that, are echoes of this huge story. God makes a world. He has a dream for us. He has a, a, a beautiful life for us to live. We, we, blip, we, we walk away. There's brokenness. It's awful, but he immediately has a plan for redemption. He wants his family back. That's, a, that's another way of saying that whole story. And he's made a way for us to be reconciled to him, but he didn't stop there. Now he's reconciling all things to himself. He's redeeming his creation. And we have this um, huge mission that we're invited into in the individual stories of our own lives. But we need to make sure it's the, the full story. I don't know if any of you uh, have seen this graphic before. It's from a guy named Gabe Lyons. But a considerable number of thinkers have been kind of looking at the faith of the last 100 years or, or so and going, you know what, maybe we've truncated the story a little bit 
Instead of four acts, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, maybe we've narrowed it down to two. Just We kind of started Genesis 3 with the fall, and then we end just before the last couple chapters of Revelation with, um, whew, we got out of the fire and we're, we're redeemed. But those bookend chapters, the first couple chapters of Genesis and the last couple chapters of Revelation are huge. Because in the first couple chapters, we see that the world that God has made is really good and full of all kinds of potential, and he's very fond of it, and he has a lot of dreams for it, and then he made us to steward it with him, to, to create beautiful things with him together in this world, and then at the end, we see that that's what he ends up doing. He redeems it all. He's not just gonna burn it all up. We get to be a part of this project of redemption, so we need to make sure we're part of the whole story. It makes our lives really quite significant, quite uh, cosmic. It means that culture matters. It means that what we do in the world matters. Um, And when I started really noticing this was I did a little study last year on the Lord's Prayer. What is the first line of the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who art in heaven. Now, I had learned before that this privilege, when Jesus taught us how to pray, and he said that we could call God our Father, I already knew that that was pretty incredible in terms of intimacy and access, right? Like that's nobody before Jesus had referred to God directly as Father. So, and he even uses this very tender, intimate word, Abba. So I knew already that that was pretty incredible, that we got to go to God and say, Abba, Dad, Father, I have this intimacy and this access to you. I'd even started to figure out that to say our Father, not my Father, told us something about community, that we're supposed to do this together, that we're supposed to do it in relationship. But there was a piece that I hadn't ever really seen before, and it has to do with the whole way of thinking of God as Father starts uh, in the Old Testament. The first time God is ever referred to um, as Father is, um, is when the Israelites are captive in Egypt, and Moses marches into Pharaoh, and he says, you've got to let my people go. And, and what he says in Exodus 4 is, thus says Yahweh, Israel is my son, my firstborn, let my people go that they may serve me. That's the first time we get this kind of father-child imagery in the Old Testament. So to the Jewish ear, for Israel to call God father is actually to speak of liberation. We have a dad that's going to get us out of this oppression, out of the slavery, out of this evil. So for, for the Jewish ear, whenever they talk about being a child of God or to talk about God as father, they're talking about liberation, about exodus, about freedom, about overcoming oppression. And then this gets developed all through the Old Testament. They, we get King David, and God says to King David, eventually from your line, um, there will be a son. I will have a son, and he'll call me father, and he will do the ultimate exodus, the ultimate overcoming of evil. So by the time Jesus comes along, for him to start referring to God as his father is this huge red flag uh, to the Jewish people around him that, oh, he's claiming that he's the one, the one that's going to deliver us from evil, the one that's going to finally do the permanent exodus away from slavery and oppression and all the evil in the, in the cosmos. This is really big. But then look what he does. He doesn't say, pray to my father. He says, here's how I want you to pray. Our father. He's your father too. You're his child. You're part of the liberation project. There's intimacy, there's community, but there's vocation, there's calling. You're supposed to participate in the freedom of everything that is from the oppression of evil. That's the calling on your life. That's, that's massive. And so that means when we're doubting, 
maybe instead of, uh, sometimes my tendency is to pray, please revive my spiritual life. Please help me to feel your presence. Maybe sometimes I should be praying, where are you moving and how can I be a part of it? What can I commit myself to? What action can I take? What story can I be a part of? Because when I pray my Father, our Father who art in heaven, I'm saying, let it be now, let it be us. We want to be part of the liberation um, project. That's why N.T. Wright says, spiritual depth and renewal come as and when they come as part of the larger package. But that package itself is about being delivered from evil, about God's kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. So look at the person sitting next to you while I grab my guitar. Just stare meaningfully at them for a second. If the person, okay, you can stop now. If the person sitting next to you can pray, our Father who art in heaven, and you can pray, our Father who art in heaven, it means that the two of you, that all of us in this room are co-conspirators in this revolution, in this making of shalom, right? God wants shalom to reign for there to be peace for everything that he's made to function the way it was meant to function. And we are partners in that revolution. You are just a much bigger deal than you ever realized. Thanks. Okay, so we're trying to stay in the story. You got to check out the story that your life is telling. You got to remember the story that the gospel is telling. Make sure it's the whole story. You get the whole big picture of your vocation. This invitation to be co-conspirators, revolutionaries who are overcoming, participating with God in the liberation of everything from the oppression of evil. Big stuff. And then the next step when you've done all that is, uh, is to commit. Even if there is no such thing as certainty. Even if certainty actually is the opposite of faith, because if we had absolute proof, faith would not be required. Uh, if, even if there is no such thing as certainty, there is commitment. And there is the um, sometimes terrible truth that I think it was G.K. Chesterton who said that understanding usually follows obedience. When God is asking you to do something, if you wait until you get why, you'll just stay frozen forever. Usually you got to go ahead and do it and then find out why he was asking you. It reminds me of this story of this guy that went into the same diner every day for years at noon and ordered the matzo ball soup. And one day he ordered his usual matzo ball soup and the waiter brought it. After a while he called the waiter over and he said, taste the soup. The waiter said, oh, sir, is there a problem with your soup? Is it not hot enough today or something? He said, taste the soup. The waiter said, sir, I'm happy to get you another, another bowl. It's, you know, food safe rules. I can't taste the soup, but I'd be happy to get you another bowl. The man said, taste the soup. The waiter said, fine, where's the spoon? The man said, aha. Sometimes I think God wants to show me something, and he's saying, taste the soup so that I can find out that I need a spoon. And I'm saying, no, tell me why first, tell me why first. Sometimes we just have to uh, obey and see what happens. Sometimes we have to uh, do what Kierkegaard so helpfully talked about, just step out into the abyss and see if there's anything there. We'll never know until we take that, that leap. So here's the thing. The next time you find yourself in a serious season of doubt, Find one part of the gospel story that you can commit yourself to, something that you can give yourself to, and give yourself to it and see what happens. Or if you have a friend who's really struggling, we've talked a lot these last couple of days, how do I help a friend? Help them find one part 
that they can commit themselves to and see what happens. Because the, the antidote to paralysis is commitment. It's jumping in the pool. It's going for it. Another thing that's really helped me is, you know, they say every good story deals with who, what, where, when, and why. And I have a lot of questions for God based on the, those words, <laughs> who, what, where, when, and why. I'm one of those people, uh, you've probably figured out by now if you've heard me talk before, that I kind of walk around with this list of questions for God in my back pocket that I plan on asking when we're face-to-face. And I know full well I'll probably get there, see him, and just go, oh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> but in the meantime, I have a lot of questions. And, you know, why do things happen the way they do? Why does God seem to intervene in some cases and not others? How will there ultimately be justice? When will it happen? Where is heaven going to be? What's that going to look like? All that stuff. I have so many questions. But when I start to get paralyzed by those questions, it really helps me to focus on the who question. Who are you, God, actually? Because if I have the answer to that question and it's a good answer, then I can trust God for stuff that doesn't make sense now on the basis of his character, if I know him well enough. And the answer to the who question we get in Jesus, right? He comes and he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And the fancy theological term that we use to describe him coming is incarnation. And some of you probably know that that term, incarnation, God coming and and taking on human form, it's related to the word carne, Have you ever had chili con carne? It's delicious. Carne means meat. So when we talk about the incarnation, we talk about God with meat on him. God made tangible and touchable. And so we can look at Jesus, and if our questions are, God, are you really about justice? Are you really about compassion? Are you really about mercy? Are you really about a love for us that will stop it? Absolutely nothing we can look at the person of Jesus and go, check. We have the answer to the who question. Now, that doesn't mean, um, I'm not suggesting that you suppress all your other questions. <laughs> Hopefully, we've already established that, that that is not a helpful response uh, to doubt. Uh, in fact, I love what William Lane Crane, uh, says. He, Craig says. He suggests that um, you make a list of the questions that are really bugging you, you know, whether they have to do with authority of scripture or some theological quandary or whatever it is, make a list of them and take one a year and make it your special project for the year. Just research it, find out what different people have thought about it, pray about it. Um, And I think that's an excellent idea, but in the meantime, never lose sight of the who question because uh, if it's the only thing, the only question that we get uh, a resounding answer to, it's it's enough if we see who God actually is. His hands were calloused, oh I am sure of that From years of nails and hammers with his father His hands were dirty, I know they must have been The times he healed blind eyes with mud and water I understand 
cool about focusing on the who question when you're kind of awash in questions is that there's this invitation in, in John. You know, in John, the book of John, the, the expression believe in Jesus is, uh, appears over a hundred times. And of these, quite a few of them, if you, if you translated them literally, actually say believe into Jesus. Isn't that cool? Believe into Jesus. Like, Throw yourself into Jesus. It's a process. It's an invitation. It's not a, an intellectual uh, ascent. Uh, there's a story I've heard about these missionaries. They're in the jungle somewhere, and they're lost, and they're looking for a path out, and they find a local guy, and they say, hey, do you, uh, do you know where the path is out of here? And the guy says, follow me. He has a big machete, and he starts hacking away at, the, at all the brush and the, the growth in the jungle, and the missionary's walking behind this guy and goes on and on. The guy's hacking and hacking for like an hour. Finally, the missionary thinks, this guy doesn't know where the path is. He says, friend. 
do you know where the path is around here? The guy turns around and gives him a huge grin and goes, friend, I am the path. <laughs> and sometimes I think in our relationship with God, we're looking for the right formula, the right book that will crack the code, the right approach, the right order to do things. And the path is Jesus. We have to believe into Jesus. Focus on the who question. Come in. Let him take us the rest of the way. And then finally, we have this invitation while we're staying in the story to live as people from the future. This is a, a phrase I got from a guy named Jonathan Martin. He has a new book out called Prototype. And he says, look, here's the thing. We're on this earth to make shalom, to help restore things to what God intended for them, to contribute to the flourishing of each other and all of creation. And we know that ultimately that's where things end up, full shalom, God having his way with the world, things functioning as they should, the line with the lamb, the weapons turned into things we grow things with. There's this awesome picture of where it's all heading. He says, the kingdom has already come. It's been inaugurated in us. So live that way now. When you encounter the power systems, the hierarchies, and the way the world operates now, live as people from the future, the people who know uh, where all of this is heading. Now, it would be a drag to know exactly how your story ends up. Part of, part of the adventure is mystery. But when you're grappling with doubt, you can know how sort of the cosmos ends up. My, my mom is an avid moviegoer, but she won't go unless she doesn't want to know what happens in the movie, but she wants to know it's okay at the end. She, she really is choked if she spends, uh, you know, buys a ticket to a movie and it ends terribly. She just feels like that is not wrong, or that is wrong, fully wrong. And um, so she, if she knows that it's going to end up okay, then she can live through whatever sort of trauma happens in that story. Well, as people from the future, trust me, my friends, this ends up okay. Read the end of Revelation. This ends up really well. And we can be people from the future uh, who live out that reality, even in the midst of our wrestling, even in the midst of our, our doubts, because we know where this story is going. One more missionary story. When I was a kid, actually, we used to occasionally have um, mission Sundays where instead of the usual sermons and people would come from some exotic location and wear cool clothes. And we used to have these things called slide projectors, this round thing, and they'd bring slides from somewhere cool. And I was a you know, sort of preteen and we would really look forward to these people coming. And this couple came and I don't know where they were missionaries, they, somewhere in the, in the jungle. And they told this story about uh, the day that a massive snake, bigger than a man, they said, um, came into their hut where they lived. And they went, understandably, running out, screaming. And this is the second story of the day that has a local with a machete. <laughs> that could be the subtitle, stay in the story, local with a machete. And uh, they find this guy and they say, do you know what to do about the snake? And he says, yes, I do. He goes into the hut and he chops the head of the snake off with his machete. Then he comes back out and he says, I've got good news and I have bad news. The good news is I have killed the snake. I have chopped his head clean off. He is done for. The bad news is the way a snake's nervous system and respiratory system, circulation system works, he's not going to know that he's dead for another few hours. It's going to take him a while to stop moving. <laughs> And so, now you can imagine you're a preteen in your little Baptist church, and they're telling the story, they, he, they have your attention. Because he said, you know, for three hours we stood out in the heat, uh, in the hot afternoon in the jungle, while this snake was thrashing around in our house, knocking pictures off the wall, smashing lamps, splattering blood everywhere. It's a good story. And yeah, you can go have lunch after this. Um, and... Uh, 
And he said, we were waiting and waiting, kind of sick to our stomachs, waiting for this snake to realize that he was dead. And then the guy who was talking, he said, and then all at once, my wife looked at each other, and we had this kind of mutual epiphany, and we went, oh my goodness, this is the story of the universe. The snake, the enemy, the serpent, uh, he's already dead. This, the, Jesus has crushed the serpent's head, but he just doesn't know it yet. We're living in a thrashing time. And if this is a particularly thrashing time for you, just know he's already a goner. We know how the story ends. God, thank you for making a, a good and beautiful world, for inviting us to live in it, and for even when we rejected you, wanting your family back and really stopping at nothing to make that happen. Thank you for the story we've been invited into, and I pray for each person in this room when we are in the thrashing time, God. Help us to remember how this story ends. Help us to live as people from the future. Help us to commit ourselves to life with you, because that's where life begins. Thanks for this time together. We pray this in the name of your Son and through the power of your Spirit. Amen.